And now I must ask, can you tell me what time it is? Uh, oh golly, my hourglass seems to have stopped. Oh, this is terrible, <laughs> oh, terrible. We're in trouble. Why is that? Because every night at the stroke of midnight, the master turns into a screaming, maniacal, demonic, raging, bloodlusting animal. And then I get me. <laughs> Hi-ho, and welcome again to a feat of lunatic daring, the most sensational, inspirational, celebrational, Muppetational podcast about Jim Henson the Muppets. My name is Chad. I'm here with my co-host, Nick Jackson. Nick, you ready to get spooky tonight? Oh, let's get spooky. I think we watched a couple of great, truly great episodes tonight. Oh, yeah. This is a feat of lunatic daring. We're a podcast about Jim Henson and the Muppets. Please check us out at Lunatic Daring on all your social media platforms. And then lunaticdaring.com, where you can always find our latest episodes, our bibliography, and our video list. We're presently in the home stretch of the season one of The Muppet Show. This felt like a like a moment. Yeah. Why don't we get things started? It's The Muppet Show with our special guest star, Mr. Vincent Price. Woo! First up, we're going to talk about episode 119 with special guest star Vincent Price. Produced late October 1976, aired 1977, uh, January in the U.S. and April in the U.K. So I was so sure it was a Halloween episode. Vincent Leonard Price Jr. was born May 27th, 1911 in St. Louis, Missouri. His grandfather, Vincent Clarence Price, invented the first cream of tartar-based baking powder. And it made him and his succeeding generations quite well off. In 1933, Vincent graduated from Yale with a degree in English and a minor in art history. While he was there, he worked on the campus humor magazine, The Yale Record, which was New Haven's version of the Harvard Lampoon, although the record actually started about four years before The Lampoon. He made his first professional stage appearance in London at the age of 23, and in 1938, he appeared in George Bernard Shaw's Heartbreak House, starring and directed by Orson Welles. For his legendary Mercury Theater. When he got in the films, he was mostly a character actor. He was in Otto Preminger's classic film Noir Laura, played Mormon founder Joseph Smith in Henry Hathaway's Brigham Young, and was sixth billed in 1939's Tower of London, which starred Basil Rathbone and Frankenstein's monster himself, Boris Karloff. That was his first horror film. It would not be his last. His first true starring role came in a film I'm quite fond of, uh, Sam Fuller's The Baron of Arizona. Uh, in 1950, where he played a real-life con man who basically tried to steal the entire Arizona territory with forged documents. But I would say it's because of 1953's House of Wax that his status as a horror icon really began. The film was one of the 10 highest grossing films of that year, and the first 3D film to accomplish that, the first 3D film to ever crack the top 10. The end will come quickly, my love. There is a pain beyond pain, an agony so intense it shocks the mind into instant oblivion. We'll find immortality together. After that, he did The Fly and then Return of the Fly and uh, two films by uh, director-producer William Castle, House on Haunted Hill and The Tingler. But it wasn't all scary stuff for Vincent. On the radio, he was the third actor to play Simon Templar, the saint. 
and he played the role of Baca in Cecil B. DeMille's 1956 version of the Ten Commandments, which was a remake of Cecil B. DeMille's 1923 silent version of the Ten Commandments. In the 60s, Price became very famous for his collaborations with low-budget indie producer Roger Corman, and together they made seven adaptations of Edgar Allan Poe stories, including the very successful House of Usher in 1960, The Pit and the Pendulum, The Raven, The Mask of the Red Death, and The Tomb of Ligia. You tried to attack me. You must trust me. Give over your will to mine. No harm will come to you. Give over your will to mine. Along with House of Wax and House on Haunted Hill, these movies with Corman are kind of what made Price into like a cult icon. He starred in The Last Man on Earth in 1964, which was the first filmic adaptation of Richard Matheson's I Am Legend, playing the role that Will Smith would play decades later. He was a semi-regular on Hollywood Squares, just like Phyllis Diller last week. He made seven appearances as the villain Egghead on William Dozier's Batman in 1966 and 67. Batman, he was probably too afraid of me to show up. <laughs> Only these foolhardy youngsters are impolitic enough to do that. Does not sound like Batushka, I know. That's because you don't know him as well as I do, Alga. At heart, he is a coward in the extreme. Batman has more courage in his little finger than you have in your whole cowardly body, you... Quiet! A few notable films from the 70s were The Abominable Dr. Phoebes, a British horror comedy, and then a sequel to that, and then Theater of Blood with Diana Rigg playing his daughter. He did a little recording, too. He wasn't a singer, but man, that voice, right? So in 76, the year he shot The Muppet Show, he released a cover of Boris Pickett's Monster Mash. The scene was rough and all were digging the sounds. Igor on chains backed by his baying hounds. The coffin bangers were about to arrive with their vocal group, the Crypt Kicker Five. They played the Monster Mash. And he also recorded dramatic readings of Edgar Allan Poe short stories and poems and stuff. Prophet said I, thing of evil, prophet still, if bird or devil, whether tempter sent or whether tempest tossed thee here ashore, desolate yet all undaunted on this desert land enchanted, on this home by horror haunted, tell me, I implore, is there, is there balm in Gilead? Tell me, tell me, I implore. Quoth the raven, nevermore. But 1982 is the year Vincent Price became someone I was aware of. Yeah, that year he narrated the Tim Burton short film Vincent about a boy who was obsessed with Vincent Price, and it's amazing, and you should watch it. Vincent tried to talk, but he just couldn't speak. The years of isolation had made him quite weak. So he took out some paper and scrawled with a pen, I am possessed by this house and can never leave it again. His mother said, you're not possessed and you're not almost dead. These games that you play are all in your head. You're not Vincent Price, you're Vincent Malloy. You're not tormented or insane, you're just a young boy. You're seven years old and you are my son. I want you to get outside and have some real fun. But I didn't see that till much later. Also in 82, he appeared on Michael Jackson's Thriller, delivering a chilling spoken word performance near the end of the six-minute title track, making him famous to a whole generation of kids who had no clue who this old guy was. Okay. Anytime, test roll. Hi, this is Michael Jackson. And this is Vincent Price, inviding you to... The, the Thriller. thriller. 
darkness falls across the land. The midnight hour is close at hand. Creatures crawl in search of blood to terrorize y'all's neighborhood. And whosoever shall be found without the soul for getting down must stand and face the hounds of hell and rot inside a corpse's shell. He was a voice in The Great Mouse Detective. He did an episode of Shelley Duvall's Fairytale Theater. And in his final film role, the creator of leather-bound golem Edward Scissorhands in Tim Burton's 1990 film. By this time, Vincent was suffering from Parkinson's disease, and it was so much of a problem that Burton actually had to cut his role way down to only two scenes. He was supposed to be in it a lot more originally. Outside of movies, Vincent was an art collector and uh, an author of several cookbooks, several gourmet cookbooks with his second wife, Mary. His political history is a little weird, like... So he was a liberal and a Democrat most of his life, but there was a small amount of time where he was a fan of Hitler. Now, it's going to sound nuts, but you have to understand that when Hitler first came into power, he was very popular in the United States. Disney was a fan of him, wasn't he? At the time, kind of the the fascist movements in Italy and Germany were seen as anti-communist. You had to pick a side. (laughs) A lot of Americans, early on at least, that were fans of uh, the fascism that was coming into play. Now, he was then later gray-listed under McCarthyism for, and this is the quote from Wikipedia, being pre-war, premature anti-Nazi. That is the thing. He changed his mind about Hitler too soon, and that got him labeled a communist. It's a weird time, man. This is a weird time, but that was a weird time. I don't think it was necessarily more socially acceptable, but it was definitely more of a gray area. But he was eventually kind of never officially blacklisted. He was what they call graylisted, which is kind of a soft ban. And he actually, to get back working, he had to sign a secret oath to the United States with the FBI to, to get his career going. He was very supportive of his daughter when she came out as a lesbian and was a member of PFLAG, which stands for Parents, Families, and Friends of Lesbians and Gays, and was one of the first celebrities to appear in public service announcements discussing AIDS. His daughter believed that Price's dedication to gay causes was both in support of her, of course, but also perhaps himself, because she believed that her father was bisexual. Vincent died of lung cancer on October 25th, 1993 in Los Angeles. He was 82. His remains were cremated, and his ashes were scattered off Point Doom in Malibu. He's been mimicked and spoofed more times than one can count. My old buddy Bill Hader does a pretty wicked impression of him, and he got to break it out on SNL a few times. Thank you, and welcome to my Halloween special. Tonight, prepare yourself for a night of spooks and scares, as we have invited over some of our most famous friends for some tricks and also some treats. He has two stars on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, one for movies and one for TV. And he had one of the most instantly recognizable voices, obviously, of of all time. And the first time I saw this episode as a kid, he scared the holy shit out of me. Watching it with my children today, I'm not sure why, (laughs) but I guess I was a more sensitive kid than they are. Maybe they're just tough now. This episode has a theme. Mm-hmm. This is like an all-spooky horror-themed episode. It's a Halloween episode, even if it's not shot around that time of year. But everything about the way that it's framed, it, it is sort of your archetypal Halloween episode of a sitcom. It has a lot of those trappings. We have our the Muppet Show theme, and um, Kermit, it's kind of a neat touch. When Kermit introduces Vincent Price, he does a little shiver. They're really playing into the idea that this master of the macabre has, has come to the Muppet Show. And welcome to a very unusual edition of the Muppet Show. Yes, things are going to be a little bit strange tonight. 
Uh, as you probably can already tell, be prepared for the strange, the weird, and the scary. Because our guest star is none other than the Crown Prince of Terror, Mr. Vincent Price. So tonight, there will be no craziness, no slapstick, and no silliness. <laughs> and he is promptly hit in the face by a pie, by Fozzie. And there's bats floating around, right? There's always, there's like bats. Yeah, in a bunch bats of are a thing all episode. And like, sometimes it's understated, especially if ghosts are on screen. But you're, I don't think we can go more than two minutes in this episode without seeing a bat. Before we go any further, we do have a new face this week. Got a couple of them, don't we? Or am I only... Well, the main one is Uncle Deadly. <laughs> uh, Uncle Deadly was designed by Michael Frith and built by Dave Goles, operated and voiced by Jerry Nelson. This is kind of a scooter situation where Uncle Deadly is in this episode, but he's going to get introduced in two episodes from now. Sometimes he's called a dragon. I don't know what, how to describe him. He's like an evil version of Figment he, from Epcot Center. He's always made me think of a gargoyle, more so than a dragon, but I could see the dragon comparison. So our first musical number, our opening musical number, is a piece of music that Henson has used before, uh, Under My Skin. Back in the Sam and Friends days, he had used the song to... What was, oh, they were like lip syncing to it, and it was like the Stan Freeberg like comedy version of it. But uh, so this song is uh, it's a Cole Porter song, though the original, not it's not a Stan Freeberg song. I've got you. You've got me <laughs> under my skin. Under your skin. I've got you. You've got me deep in the heart of me. That's very true. You have got the character Behemoth, who we have met before. Sandy Duncan insulted him. Mm -hmm. Who eats a character named Shaky Sanchez, who we have seen before, played by Jim. But this is a kind of Shaky's big moment. Such an unfortunate name. It is. <laughs> he looks like a Fraggle. A little bit, yeah. He looks a little bit like uh, Wembley. Wembley. And a different color swap. You know, it's a pretty simple use of the, the song. He swallows him, and then they keep singing and while he's in his stomach, and he keeps trying to pop up and everything. And when he finally swallows him for the last time, he pops up, uh, Shaky pops up and sings a little bit of Gay Sarah, Sarah, whatever will be, will be. We had mentioned The Man Who Knew Too Much, uh, the Hitchcock movie, and that's, that song is from that movie, sung by Doris Day. It was a big hit song, it won an Oscar. It was number 48 on AFI's 100 Years, 100 Songs list. Just, just give me a chance here. You'd sacrifice anything come what might for the sake of having me near in spite of a warning voice that comes in the night and repeats and repeats in your ear. Don't you know, little fool? You never can win. Use your mentality. Wake up to reality. Backstage, we meet, I get, I, I mean, is this a new character you're talking about, too? Yeah, I, I mean, they're they're not quite whatnots, but... Uh, they do have a name. We find out in the next episode that their names are Tom, Dick, and Harry. Although one of them is female, so at least... I think Dick is, is the female. Yeah, so, um, so we have a three-headed monster who wants to perform, uh, who wants to audition. I guess Scooter's found him, and Kermit's not really um, too excited about it. I will say this, Kermit has a hard time with non-binary thinking in this moment. This joke could have gone another way. I think, like, it's it's on the line. It's on the line now. In 1976, you wouldn't have even noticed. Mm -hmm. But there is a little bit of pronoun confusion there, which would be both less and more confusing today. True. Tom, Dick, and Harry are played by Nelson Goals and John Lovelady. There's not a lot to the character. 
you know, the theme of this episode is monsters, mm-hmm. right? So, so almost everything, you know, the behemoth thing, you get this big monster eating this little guy. It's got this kind of Halloween-y setting. And then you've got this three-headed monster backstage. Now, they're not exactly scary. Hi, Hi Mr. Frog. Can, can we, we be, be on your show? Grief, it's a triple header. <laughs> I'm going back to the dressing room. I'm going to the makeup room. I'll wait here. Now, we get confirmation of Hilda's nationality. They've made reference to her being Romani in the past, right? Not specifically. In honor of my homeland, Kermit has asked me to do the next introduction. We take you now to Transylvania, to a high and brooding hill. We take you now to the House of Horror. I don't know if you remember, in the first couple of episodes, they had this thing called the Muppet Players. Remember the uh, the Western sketch? Mm-hmm. Kermit was like, here's the Muppet Players. And they did, like, they played, they, they went out and they acted on stage. This is what this reminded me of, where it was like a, it wasn't a musical number, it wasn't a comedy sketch, it was like a performance. It's, I, I can see that this, this is where we saw the camera work, or this is where it stuck out to me more significantly, in terms of following them around. But there's also... I mostly know about Vincent Price through cultural osmosis. I've seen him in a couple of things, but I was probably too young to really process that it was Vincent Price. Watching this as an adult, I didn't realize they had, like, the full-on lantern jaw. Like, I was kind of distracted as I was watching this because I just wanted to see Vincent Price and Bruce Campbell in a Sean Connery, Harrison Ford-type father-son vehicle. And it's something that I'm never going to get to see, but that would have been amazing. Fozzie and Gonzo have rented a, a, a cottage. Got Baganza found the ad in uh, Vampire Weekly. Mm-hmm. Turns out that they've rented it from a, a vampire. After they come into the house and there's ghosts in there, I think, right? They come into this spooky house and then they uh, are in ca- they encounter Vincent as the master of the house and also Uncle Deadly. I am traveling with my beautiful assistant and a hideously deformed monster. <laughs> oh, hideously deformed is right. Watch it. I'm the beautiful assistant. Oh, boy. You never get to see the one that was actually repulsive, and I wasn't sure if it was just like a like a beauty standards flip, or there was just some sort of like amoeboid mass out that's keeping track of the carriage. It's coming up on midnight, and when midnight happens, the master turns into this, apparently turns into a madman. This is the one skit that my four-year-old got a little spooked by. She kind of found this one a little scary. But then they figure out it's midnight on New Year's Eve. So here's a, this is a real inside joke. Instead of turning into a werewolf or a vampire or something, he turns into Jack Parnell. Do you know who Jack Parnell is? No. He was the band director, the conductor of the Muppet Show Orchestra. What they wanted was like a big band guy, Mm -hmm. which is such an inside joke that could have only made the staff of the Muppet Show laugh. Like, I'm not quite sure why they would pick someone who worked on the show. I just assumed that it was someone from the 70s that I wouldn't have known the name of. Technically, that's true. He was a drummer during the big band era. He had his own group, the Jack Parnell Orchestra, but he was hired in 1956 to be the musical director at ATV. So he had been working at ATV for 20 years. So, but that's a, that's a fun introduction to our star. Vincent Price was a very good actor, but he also knew how to play up his persona. So there's something, we've seen it before now, but there's a a certain magic that the the Muppet Show has where actors can come on and just have fun with it. Like, I don't know if they were stressed behind the scenes or they had to do a bunch of reshoots and it was eating to their patients, but it does seem sort of like, not necessarily like you're coming back to see old friends, but 
Like, this is the part of my job that I wish was more of my job kind of thing. These episodes were shot after the show was already on the air. Mm-hmm. And so I think the guests we're getting now are a little more enthusiastic. Mm-hmm. They're a little more aware that they're on a show that is becoming a big thing. And they're probably just more excited to be on The Muppet Show than Juliet Prowse was, right? Not that she doesn't, she didn't work hard, but like now it's a hit show and they know that. Again, we're, we're going with this horror theme for the night, except for there's one sketch that doesn't have horror in it. And it's one that easily could have. And you'll know it when I gloss over it. <laughs> Statler and Waldorf are in their box talking about how Vincent Price is the scariest actor since Thudge McGurk. He basically just described this actor who kind of vanished and became a monster. Yeah. And then the monster slowly shows its head and uh, scares them as they're talking about the great Thudge McGurk. Actually, the puppet for Thudge McGurk is really just Miss Kitty with an extra eyes and stuff put on it. It's a puppet they already had. I did not catch that. This story that they tell about Thudge McGurk, remember it, because in episode 121, it's going to kind of become the backstory for Uncle Deadly. Okay. It's it's a very similar story. Shaky walks by backstage, and he's still trembling. And we get another scene with Tom, Dick, and Harry that are waiting to audition, and they they have no idea what they do. Mm -hmm. Like, every one of them gives a different answer. Sam introduces his favorite act. He seems like he's he's losing a little bit of faith at this point, though. I think he is. Like it, <laughs> I think Sam's starting to give up. I can't remember if it was this episode or the next episode where he's just like, just don't let me down. Like, don't embarrass me in front of, just don't. <laughs> there was one earlier where he was like, don't mess it up. Yeah, so Sam introduces Wayne and Wanda, and they, uh, they come out and they're going to sing Bewitched, Bothered, and Bewildered which is um, Rogers and Hart's song from the musical Pal Joey. It's been recorded a bunch, but it's from like 1940. This one isn't, Wayne's okay in this one. I mean, he's not going to be like full on jerk all of the time. So what happens is they're singing and when they get to the word bewitched, Wanda magically turns into the blue freckle. But Wayne doesn't like run away. He seems kind of okay with it. We have a panel discussion. Thought we were done with these. I guess we're not. (laughs) You sound so salty. I'm always going to love them for the Rita Moreno episode, though. Yeah, I'm not salty. I just just thought we were were through this. Uh, But this is a good one. (laughs) Well, you've got Vincent playing a a chef, which Vincent, like I said, did write cookbooks, was a gourmet. And uh, Tim, it's Gorgon Heap, which I think this is the first time Gorgon Heap is named. Uh, A character named Pierre Lacousse, which is a French chef. That's just a, a whatnot. And uh, they're talking about fine food. Technically, yeah, but I, they don't make it very far. It all just sort of seems like it goes down the pipe. They're arguing over what, like, the most tasty dish in the world is. And after every single argument, Gorgon Heap just eats something or someone. And uh, he ends up kind of eating everybody. At the end, he's going to eat Kermit, and Vincent helps him season him. Well, he's, he does love his frog legs. My kids don't get the frog legs jokes yet. <laughs> Take him on a trip to Louisiana. Yeah, they don't know that people eat frog's legs. Kermit somehow ends up in Statler and Wardour's booth again. I think he does get eaten at the end of that sketch, and he's just saying, don't count on me being gone, gone, or something to that effect. Now we have a particularly notable at the dance, because it's full of ghosts. They did a lot with ghosts this episode, which is to be expected, but also, this is definitely a step forward, but I still feel like they're kind of finding their feet in terms of... The pacing, it, it kind of felt like the explosions with Ben Vereen on the last recording. I think that they were well done. Like, it seems like they were having fun with it. Yeah, the ghosts are just, they're um, superimposed, basically, right? Mm-hmm. They're being printed onto the existing film at, you know, a certain opacity so that uh, they're transparent. I'm going into the moving business. Really? Locally? No, ghost to ghost. <laughs> 
There's a Muppet that seems to be Dracula, and that was a creepy-looking Muppet. Yeah. George and Mildred are back dancing together. Dracula takes a bite out of somebody. Beautiful day monster is scared of the bats. It's at the dance, but it's at the dance with ghosts. <laughs> it's at the dance with ghosts. It's like it's like something out of the Haunted Mansion. At dance Macabre. <laughs> dance Macabre, exactly. Okay, so now we have the UK spot that you were talking about. I thought this was a nice touch. Usually, I feel like more often than not, the UK spots are Rolf. Usually, yeah. It cements the whole Halloween episode thing, if nothing else has. Like, I can understand how this scared you as a kid. We've got the creatures that you would see in a Halloween-themed thing, but there's no real suspense. I don't think that was their aim, necessarily. For whatever reason, and I can't, I wish I could articulate it better. This sketch reminds me of Scholastic Book Fairs, and it might just be the association with Fall. Habua? Okay, all right, all right. Okay. I wish I could articulate better. It just does. Like, I can smell the Scholastic Book Fair as I hear these ghosts sing, and I don't know, maybe it's just stress getting to me or something, but, like, it's not an unwelcome thought. I had completely forgotten about Scholastic Book Fairs until my kid got to school. They still do them. Oh, that's great. I mean, not in person right now, but well, they still do them. This struck me for two reasons, this particular uh, segment. One, it was a UK spot that's themed with the episode, like you were saying. Mm. which is rare. Usually the UK spots are just a musical number that you can lift out. So the fact that they actually did a themed UK spot is kind of impressive to me. I, I wouldn't expect that. I would have expected like you're talking about, just Rolf singing an old Winnie the Pooh song. But the thing about this is they're singing a damn Beatles song. I'm looking through you. Where did you go? I thought I knew you. What did I know? Is this a Beatles song? They're singing I'm Looking Through You, which is from Rubber Soul. This would cost you millions today <laughs> to get the rights to put a Beatles song on your television show. That's crazy to me. In a couple weeks, we're going to see an another Beatles song that they do. If you pay attention, they're actually, I love the voices because they're, they're singing it with kind of a spooky ghost accent, but there's a little touch of Liverpool. You don't sound different, I've Fozzie comes in the end to try to uh, shoo him away. Mm. This is a backstage musical number. That's true. They, they're incorporating that part of the set more. Yeah, we haven't seen a lot of those. And tonight we're going to talk about, there's going to be several, we're going to get several angles of the backstage we've never seen before. Our talk spot is uh, just Vincent and Kermit hanging out. I So I've seen, I think this was a meme for a while, or... I'm sure. Fanged Kermit. Yeah, Kermit with his vampire teeth. Yeah. Like it was the 70s. He wasn't, or I guess he'd been acting for a long time, but... This makes me think of Vincent Price as a grandpa. <laughs> yeah. The accelerated dad jokes and really, really bad puns. Plus, there's a little bit of a Dragon Ball thing in there with... Well, that's a, a tangent we don't need to go down, but... You'd have to go down it alone, so... <laughs> yeah, well, just people watching know that Vincent Price made me think of a camp Master Roshi and... And people listening should know that I have no clue what anything he just said was. <laughs> You're not a man of culture. It's okay. Um, yeah, I know. No, no. My Dragon Ball knowledge is lacking, I'll admit. That's the one with Pikachu, right? All right, so we can have that conversation. <laughs> <laughs> it's a fun number with uh, Kermit with his uh, his fangs, and basically Vincent tells Kermit that being a turning into a vampire is just a matter of will. Well, he said he trained himself in it for a while, and then Kermit just does it off the bat. There's something really weird about seeing Kermit with teeth, though, or seeing a frog with teeth in general just sounds terrifying for some reason. Yeah, it's a, it's a kind of, I'm looking at the picture now, it's kind of creepy. It's like a mini hippo, just... This, to me, though, is like, this is Vincent Price. He was a good actor. Mm -hmm. He started many great films, a lot of them kind of campy B-movie stuff, but he was awesome. 
But this kind of like affable horror, mm-hmm. it's campy, it's silly. It's not like scary, scary. It's funny, scary. It's Halloween scary. Right. The subject is horror. The subject is ghosts and goblins and monsters, but it's done with such a light touch that there's no real fear involved. It's just, you know, it's more fantasy even than horror, right? Yeah. Kermit's backstage with Tom, Dick, and Harry. They tell him that they want to get that their act is them singing a song, uh, T for three instead of T for two. Kermit's not amused by that at all. Here is a Muppet news flash. Our newsroom has been flooded with calls today reporting that furniture all over town has been turning into monsters. I loved this one. This might have been one of my favorite sketches of the episode, though. I, I don't know if it's fair to say that it breaks the fourth wall. I think the, the guy in the apartment... It breaks a does, couple of fourth walls. <laughs> yeah, like the guy in the, the apartment does eventually look directly at the camera, but the central premise is that furniture starts eating people, and it feels like it borrows a little bit from something like Attack of the Killer Tomatoes. I don't know if that was out before this or not. It might have been. <laughs> Attack of the Killer Tomatoes! Attack of the Killer Tomatoes! The short film, Attack of the Killer Tomatoes, by John DeBello, came out in 1976. It was followed by a feature film in 1978. 1988, Return of the Killer Tomatoes, with George Clooney. 1991, Killer Tomatoes Strike Back. 1992, Killer Tomatoes Eat France. And somewhere in there, there was a TV show. If you haven't heard of Attack of the Killer Tomatoes, imagine a movie called Attack of the Killer Tomatoes, and that's what it is. Attack of the Killer Tomatoes! Attack of the Killer Tomatoes! They'll beat you, bash you, squish you, mash you, chew you up for brunch, and finish you off for dinner or lunch. Much, much, dinner or lunch, much, much, dinner or lunch. It starts with your, your typical Muppet newscast, the guys talking about your furniture trying to eat you. And for anyone that's familiar with D&D monsters, basically every piece of furniture turns into a mimic. And they start sprouting eyes and mouths, and this guy starts running from his apartment. He lures most of his ap- furniture out of his apartment, but then the TV decides to try and eat him. We're watching the Muppet newscaster, and then the camera pulls back. Because yes. we were talking about camera movements. The camera pulls back from the TV into this man's living room, watching the news about how his furniture is coming alive and eating people, and then his furniture starts trying to eat him. I don't know if you remember this. On Sam and Friends, Old Black Magic, Harry the Hipster, and I forget who else are watching the TV, and Sam is on there, and he's stuck, and they unstick the TV, and then the camera moves into the television. I do remember that. Those icy fingers up and down my spine. The same old witchcraft when your eyes meet mine. Same old tingle that I feel inside. And then that elevator starts to try. Down and down I go. Round and around I go. Like a leaf caught in a tide. And the camera pulls out again at the end of it outside and it reminded me of this it's the same camera trick this may be the only time we get to see someone watching the muppet news like who tunes into the muppet news we do chad we do after he gets eaten by his television then it goes back into the thing and the newscaster is like that's ridiculous the desk eats him yeah no it was really good and it was also it was just it just struck me as how different it was it breaks a couple of fourth walls. It, it, it's got this more dynamic camera move than we've seen before. And it, it's an old trick, though. I mean, this is a 20-year-old trick from Jim. During a blackout sequence, Vincent asks... Oh, Vincent, by the way, what a diva. He's looking around looking for Hilda to take his wardrobe back to his room. He was, it was a cape specifically, wasn't it? It's Vincent Price. I'm sure it was a cape. 
she needs to stay employed. He's being very philanthropic. It's probably a union thing. <laughs> I remember working when I when I worked as a production assistant on like low budget movies. Mm-hmm. They'd be you'd be there and they'd be like, "Why aren't you picking up the trash?" You'd be like, "Oh, sorry, you pick up the trash." And then you get become a production assistant on a, a studio film and you go to pick up trash and like, "Why are you picking up trash?" We have a union person for that. <laughs> Craft service takes care of trash on film sets. But he ends up running into Sweetums, and Sweetums says he can lend him a hand. This is what I mean by gentle horror, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, excuse me, Mr. Price. Yes? Can I give you a hand? Oh, please. Here. <laughs> That's my kind of joke. Fozzie's talking to the three-headed monster backstage to Tom, Dick, and Harry. <laughs> I did like this. They've come up with a new way to do their act. Mm-hmm. One of them's the straight man. One of them's the comic. And the third one's the audience. So that way they always get a laugh when they tell a joke. I would have preferred something different for the backstage story than the three-headed monster. We have more of a strong focus on the host this episode than we do in the, the second one that we're covering tonight. And then we'll, we'll get into that when we get there. But yeah, I mean, this whole thing is this whole thing is Vincent Price-a-rama. Maybe the backstage story was as, as light as it was just so they could devote more focus there. I'm not sure. Just didn't didn't quite work out, but it's made up for by the rest of it. The demons squeal in sheer delight. It's you they spy, so plump, so right. For though the groove is hard to beat, yet still you stand with frozen feet. You try to run, you try to scream, but no more sun you'll ever see. For evil reaches from the crypt to crush you in its icy grip. So, Nick, I know that usually when we get to the talking houses, we skip over them. Or, to be fair, I skip over them. But there's two things notable about this week's talking houses. One, every sketch in this episode is, like, horror-themed, right? Mm -hmm. Like, everything. But the talking houses isn't, which is weird because they're kind of spooky-looking and they've done ghost jokes before, but this time it's a hospital joke. It seems a little strange. My youngest boy is very interested in medicine. Ah, he's a doctor. No, a hospital. But the other important thing about this talking houses sketch is it's the last one. Really? They're done. This is the last talking houses sketch. Would you like to say a word for the dearly departed Talking Houses sketch? So I never minded them because they randomly reminded me of some random book I read as a kid, and I can't remember which one it was. But, like, something about the composition of each shot and, like, the, the nighttime thing. Maybe it was Tar Beach? Like, a little nugget of nostalgia, but that didn't make them good sketches. Yeah, I can understand that, but apparently someone with the Muppets agreed. <laughs> if anyone's been listening, you know I will not be mourning it, but I thought I'd bring that up. <laughs> When you're down and troubled and you need some love and care and nothing, nothing is going right. You've Got a Friend is a, uh, was written by Carol King. It's a kind of a, I guess you'd call it like a light rock classic, adult rock, soft rock, whatever you want to call it. But it was written by Carol King, and it was re- released by both Carol King and James Taylor in 1971, and they each won different Grammys for their versions of it. Hmm. You just call out his name, and you'll know wherever you are, he'll come running to see you again. Winter, spring, summer, or fall All you have 
have to do is call And I'll be there Yes, he will You got a friend Vincent's in some kind of what, laboratory, maybe? I'm not entirely sure where he was, to be honest. It would make sense. It's like some kind of spooky-looking setting, and he's got his hairs all... This is, it's funny enough, this is where he's looking his most sinister and, like, crazed. His outfit's a little more costumey, you know, his hair's a little frazzled. But the joke of it is that this song, You've Got a Friend, which is, like I said, a very gentle song about having a friend, you know, you'll... If uh, anyone has ever had braces, they've probably heard the song in the waiting room. But it's him and a ton of monsters. A couple of freckles, Droop, Purple Heap, Green Heap, Miss Kitty, Flower Eating Monster, which I'd have, I, I didn't look up which one Flower Eating Monster was. Yeah, and, and it's, it's again, it's more that Muppet, it's not dramatic irony, what would you call it, comic irony? Well, I mean, it's pretty tongue-in-cheek, but it's... This is a classic song. This is a very popular, but it's like a goth cover of it. They changed the song up, he, he, he does it with this, it reminded me a little bit of his part in Thriller. But it's it's a nice number to go out on. It capitalizes on his image. Just the fact that it's Vincent Price, quote unquote, singing makes it special. And then uh, we close it out with Kermit asking the audience to give Vincent a hand. But it's Vincent that gives Kermit a hand. You can see his real hand in it too. But it, it, I think that actually yeah. helps sell it a little bit more because yeah, I think so too. All episode, Vincent's been that kid in the candy shop. He's just loved being here with all of the Muppets. This is widely considered a classic episode. Justly so. It's We open by talking about seeing the progression in the way that, not just the Muppet show, but the way that Jim and the other performers have grown and have gotten more comfortable with integrating different techniques into the show. They're getting more like adventurous with these two episodes. Like, the last couple of weeks, they've been coming into their own more in different ways. They're getting bolder. Mm -hmm. They found their baseline, and now they're trying to push a little further. Stress testing it, basically, <laughs> to see what they can get away with. The foulest stench is in the air, the funk of 40,000 years, and grisly ghouls from every tomb are closing in to seal your doom. And though you fight to stay alive, your body starts to shiver, for no mere mortal can resist the evil of the thriller. Can you dig it? <laughs> it's great fun. <laughs> great anger. Cut. Okay. All right. Hey, uh, George! George! What? 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 Would you clean up this backstage? This whole place is a mess. Yeah, of course it's a mess! With all these Muppets exploding around here, every time I turn around, there's somebody blowing his top! Ah, uh, George, that is a slight exaggeration, isn't it? <laughs> uh, I guess it's all in my mind! So this is the second time Valerie Harper has come up on this podcast because she had a very close, well, not a close relationship, but she was tangentially connected to Sandy Duncan. Well, we'll get to that in a minute. This episode, even more than the last one, was a very forward-looking, how to put it, this is The Muppet Show. 
we can call this a very special episode because <laughs> I've got thoughts, but we're in season one and there's a lot of classic stuff and a lot of great stuff, but this felt so much more fully formed. Did we see Miss Piggy this episode? That just occurred to me now. No, there was no Piggy this episode. There's a different energy to this, which is going to be the energy of season two on. Whether it's on purpose or not, they stumbled on some things this episode that are going to stick. This is episode number 120? Wow, 120. Yep. With Valerie Harper, shot in October 1976, aired that winter. Tell me about Valerie Harper. I grew up I grew up with Valerie Harper. So I didn't. Valerie Harper was born August 22nd, 1939, in Suffern, New York. She was a middle child between an older sister and a younger brother, although after her parents got divorced, she would later have a half-sister. And her dad was uh, a light salesman, um, so they moved around a lot as a kid. She made her break into show business as a dancer and a chorus girl, which is something that we'll, we'll see referenced pretty early in this episode. Her first film role was in an adaptation of Lil Abner, which is an old comic strip. Uh, she was part of the ensemble of Paul Sills Story Theater, and she would also tour with Second City. But she was primarily a theater performer until she ended up moving to L.A. And while performing in theater in 1970, she was encouraged to audition for the Mary Tyler Moore show, landing her role as Rhoda. And the thing is, I don't know why... But for whatever reason, the theme song to the Mary Tyler Moore show is something that I heard enough as a kid that it's burned into my memory. I know nothing about the show. <laughs> at all. Yeah. I don't know what the plot is. It could be a Cold War era, like, really sad spy drama or something. Or maybe it's just a modern version of M.A.S.H. Whatever it was. But you, girl, and you should know it. With each glance and every little movement you show know that they were going to make it after all. And that's literally it. That's all there is to that show. Um, but Valerie Harper would play Mary's neighbor, Rhoda. Apparently she would often be cast as, I guess, stereotypically Jewish characters, uh, despite the fact that she wasn't necessarily Jewish. She wasn't at all Jewish. So Rhoda proved to be a very popular character and Rhoda would spin off. My name is Rhoda Morvinster. I was born in the Bronx, New York, in December 1941. I've always felt responsible for World War II. The first thing I remember liking that liked me back was food. I had a bad puberty. It lasted 17 years. I'm a high school graduate. I went to art school. My entrance exam was on a book of matches. I decided to move out of the house when I was 24. My mother still refers to this as the time I ran away from home. Eventually, I ran to Minneapolis, where it's cold, and I figured I'd keep better. Now I'm back in Manhattan. New York, this is your last chance. From 1974 to 1978. She won four Emmy Awards and a Golden Globe Award for Rhoda. She would play Valerie Hogan in the NBC series Valerie, which I don't know how common this would have been. It's pretty cold-hearted. There was a contract dispute, and they decided to kill her off of the show that was named after her between seasons, at which point it became the Hogan family, and it brought on our former host, Sandy Duncan. Talked about it a little bit last week, but it was big news because she wasn't a nobody. When this happened to Valerie Harper, it, it made the entertainment news pretty bigly because, you know, she, she was a, a she's a very well-respected woman and a very, you know, a comedy titan. She did have a number of different bit parts. She did a little bit of voice work, but she, she never stayed from the theater for very long. She ran for the president of the Screen Actors Guild. 
in 2001 um, and served on their board of directors. She still did guest roles. She was on Desperate Housewives, and I think her last voice role was on American Dad. She was also on The Simpsons for a couple of different bit roles as well. She was randomly in an anime role for Sorceress, Stab, or Orphan, which I don't expect anyone else to know what that is. <laughs> in 2009, I shouldn't laugh as I say this, I'm sorry, she was, she was diagnosed with lung cancer. Yeah. Or she was eventually discharged, but she continued battling it into 2016 and sadly passed away on August 30th, 2019. Yep, two years ago. Oh my god, that is two years ago. She's definitely one of the people... Listen, there's a lot of reasons the last four years have sucked. Let's be let's be clear. Five years. And as we all know, ever since Prince and Bowie died, everything's just been screwed. Bowie said it himself. We've got five years. Apparently they were the ones holding the universe together. But Valerie Harper was one of the ones that we lost in the last five years yeah she also uh absolutely kills this episode oh yeah she's amazing i mean we start off kind of normal right where kermit's just kind of getting at george about not not doing his job very well i'm gonna tell you this knowing the future george better watch out because uh and i'm starting to see maybe why he got fired oh i i like george yeah but he's got some attitude unlike the rest of the muppets fair but then who walks in through the back door valerie Valerie, into the backstage, just walks in. For someone who has watched a good chunk of The Muppet Show, this shouldn't phase you. But seeing it for the first time like this, this has never happened. They've been backstage very rarely, once or twice. But the guests don't show up backstage very often. But this isn't just that. She just walks in. Am I in the right place? Oh, Valerie Harper, welcome to The Muppet Show. Oh, we're so glad that you can come and be with oh, us. Oh, me too, Kermit. You know, I'm not filming Rhoda this week. I got a hiatus. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Did you get it lifting something? Oh, no. Maybe you should see a doctor. Kermit, that means that we're on vacation. And, um, well, you see, I'm a, a total Muppet freak. Everyone in this joint is a freak. She's trying to get on the show, too. Now, Kermit's already got a, 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 an act booked, though. She wants to be on the show, but Bertha Beasley and her galloping geese were booked. Beasley, funny enough, Gags Beasley, was uh, Fozzie's comedy writer, so I wonder if there's any relation there. But Bertha Beasley and her galloping geese haven't shown up. So we need to talk about Valerie and boundaries, and usually it's going to be on the <laughs> other side. <laughs> Valerie is a young starlet. She really wants to get ahead. And we understand that. And sometimes that means sabotaging your opponent. And I'm going to try to keep from making the worst Tanya Harding jokes, but like... I was going to go with Showgirls. Oh, well, we had planned to open a show with uh, Bertha Beasley and her galloping geese. Yes. Uh, but actually, uh, Bertha isn't here yet, and the show's about to start. She won't be here, Kermit. Uh, what? I uh, scotch-taped a bushel of birdseed to her body. Even as we speak, geese are pecking her into oblivion. <laughs> Oh, wow, you are some determined lady. I certainly am, Kermit. So here's the thing, though. <laughs> geese are terrifying. Like, geese are actively terrifying. They're mean. But, like, mean. I don't think enough people consider that post-apocalyptic scenario in which you are that one crazy person that has just trained a flock of attack geese because no one's going to mess with you. So Valerie has sabotaged her rival. Nomi has uh, pushed the dancer <laughs> down the stairs in front of her. Nancy Kerrigan has been whacked. I used to constantly confuse her with Cindy Crawford. Nancy Kerrigan? The mentor dancer in Showgirls. Oh, that's Gina Gershon. I was, Nancy Kerrigan's Tanya. Harding's oh, rival. right. Sorry. So because of that, Kermit's got a, an opening. But Valerie, who again, by this time, is a multiple Emmy winner decides to audition. And this is another first. We get a big musical number backstage. 
it's couched in this in it, that it's an audition. So there is a, I guess, diegetic reason for it. However, this whole episode really kind of cranks up the wacky meter just a little bit. And Valerie Harper breaking into a giant musical number backstage. Complete with costume changes. At least let me audition for you, will you? Sure. Oh, go on in. I'm just a Broadway baby. Walking off my tired feet. Pounded 42nd Street to be in our show. Oh, Broadway Baby, which is from Stephen Sondheim's musical Follies, 1971. It's actually a pretty new song. And she just goes for it. Absolutely just goes for it. To be in our show. Oh, gee. I'd love to be on a marquee. All to winkling lights. Like you said, she changes multiple times. She does impressions. <laughs> she does Mae West. Hey, Mr. Producer. Oh, some girls get the breaks. Just give me my cue, sir, cause I got what it takes. It's in Marilyn Monroe. Mr. Producer, Kermit, I'm talking to you, sir. That probably confused young Chad. I'm not gonna be. I'm not gonna lie. That moment probably confused me <laughs> for reasons. Didn't confuse Statler. We're gonna talk about Statler. This is that's this is another thing that is so out of whack with this episode. Like so completely unprecedented. Great musical number, multiple costume changes, and Kermit has a great punchline at the end. I tell you, you're going out on that stage a star, but you're gonna be coming back a chorus girl. I'm not sure that's what I had in mind. And I didn't know she actually was a chorus girl when she started off, so I didn't know that. Had to put ourselves in the mindset, she's a giant star True. when she steps onto the set. Mary Tyler Moore wasn't just a television show. It was the television show. Rhoda is one of the more famous, especially in the 70s, but like Rhoda is one of the great television characters of all time. <laughs> This is like such a great way to introduce her into it. It's a casual introduction. You know, she doesn't get like a big thing. She comes in, she's like, hey guys, I want to audition and breaks out into this number that you just don't expect. And I think she's, I think she's just wonderful in it. So there are two old men that uh, sit in the balcony every night in the Muppet Theater. And um, you might call them uh, grumpy old men. You might call them grumpy old men. Um, sometimes they nap. Sometimes they talk about old actors. Uh, they're not very nice to the comedian. I don't think they like bears very much. Also, they uh, might have been in Germany at interesting times. It is possible that they are Germans who are um, in hiding. This week, they're real randy. So we've seen a number of different times when, say, Miss Piggy has got some real strong feelings for Kermit that might be going one way, but... Ostensibly, I think her thought process is if she's pushing them one way regularly and potentially violently enough, then Stockholm Syndrome will set in and there'll be some sort of reciprocation. In this particular case, our boy Statler decides that he's going to flip out over this and wins the flip off <laughs> with Waldorf. And he's going to wait outside of her room until she comes out and present her with a plant because he's going to be a stage door Johnny. It's a real thing. I mean, cut this out if it's inappropriate, but there's probably nothing that she wants to see more when she steps out of her dressing room than a guy with a chin like a ball sack holding an erect <laughs> plant because he thinks she's attractive. Like, just... Yeah. But this does play into our types of, you know, going backstage, you know, um, 
gentlemen callers for women, you know, on the stage. That was something that would, that would happen. I realize it was the 70s and I guess courtship standards are different. I don't think he's inappropriate. I think it's weird. It's weird, but he's very cordial when it comes to her. Yeah, but still, no. He's cordial with her. He's a little, he feels a little entitled to meet her. Okay, you were trying to upsell me on Taylor Swift's music. I have no attachment to Taylor Swift one way or the other. But if I were waiting outside of Taylor Swift's, if I had snuck in somehow with a plant of any kind, and I was waiting outside of Taylor Swift's dressing room, just being like, hi, I'm here to meet you. She might play it off. She might be very cordial. But somewhere in the back of her mind, there's just going to be that lizard brain aspect that's like, is this guy a threat? Because I legit showed up out of nowhere and was like, I'm important enough to be entitled to your time. She she would not have that because you would be shot because she has had stalkers before. But that's what I'm getting at. The security around Taylor Swift is pretty tight. <laughs> the event that she is actually listening to this. It was just a point of common reference. If she is, I've got a seven-year-old daughter that when you do resume Zoom concerts, Taylor, just saying, like... You know, if, if you happen to be a fan of the show, and I'm speaking to, I'm speaking only to Taylor Swift right now. If you happen to be a fan of the show, I have a, a seven-year-old, about to be eight-year-old daughter that I promised I would take to one of your shows one day. And uh, if you could help me out on the price a little bit, that'd be great. At some point, I'm going to have a shameless plug for the show and I'm not going to feel bad about it. Because of the last 15 seconds, yeah. I'll be like, <laughs> yeah, I've got this thing coming out. You guys should totally check it out and not feel bad about it. It's going to be great. <laughs> you can always plug whatever you want on the show. I just, you know, I'm just saying, yes. if we were talking to Taylor Swift, I wanted to get across a message. So <laughs> I have I have a quick uh, little quiz for you. Why do you think it's Statler and not Waldorf? I, I'm going to have to guess the ball section. I don't think that's it. It's just, it's the first thing that comes to mind. Jim is Waldorf. Ah. You can't have Waldorf interacting with Kermit backstage. Mm-hmm. I think he's also more appropriate because he actually looks a little scarier and bonier. True. As opposed to looking a bit like a turtle. Yeah, no, that makes sense. But it's also because Jim plays Waldorf and it's not logistically preferable to have two Jim characters backstage interacting. Uh, So yes, he decides he's going to go back and uh, woo Miss Harper. We get the Swedish chef who is making a chocolate cake. I'm not so sure about this one. I liked it. I might just really like seeing the Swedish chef whenever he shows up. How do we... Okay, we have to figure this out. Where do we stand on mock Swedish versus mock Japanese? Because mock Japanese sounds racist to me. Even though the mock Swedish isn't any more or less accurate than the mock Japanese. I didn't actually peg it as Japanese. Like, maybe on a repeat listen. It sounds a little bit like John Belushi's Samurai. Excuse me. Like a room for the night, please. Actually, I'll be staying through till uh, probably Tuesday. I think it's supposed to be Japanese. In Skirgers for this I just figured it was an absurdist piece. So he bakes a cake and then everything's fine until he tries to cut the cake and the cake is not happy. Well, there was also something really nice because he pays a lot of attention to putting a bunch of cream and stuff on top of the Muppet or on, on top of the cake, which is going to pay off when he swings the bat at it. If it was just the uh, the Muppet itself, it wouldn't do anything. But if he's swinging for that, uh, that pile of cream, you've got a more visceral effect. It is not a bat. It is a cake and smoosher. A cake and smoosher. 
the cake starts yelling at him in what I believe is mock uh, Japanese. And eventually, to shut it up, he uh, smushes it with a baseball bat. Cake and smoosher! So this next scene is a real big deal. A lot of scenes in this episode are a big deal, but this is a real big deal. Statler comes backstage. This feels wrong. <laughs> I just don't feel comfortable with him being backstage Look, at the Muppet Theater. If you walk in with enough confidence. It's like Sean Hannity like showing up at the backstage of an Obama rally. And thinking that he belongs there. Walking around like he owns the place. Because he really wants to meet Michelle. But like... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah. Even Sean Hannity can't resist wanting to meet Michelle Obama. I just want to know that she approves of my life choices, okay? So Statler comes back, and he wants to meet her, and, and Kermit calls him a backdoor Johnny, which I do believe is an actual Broadway phrase for men who would try to... Normally, they wouldn't show up with a giant, carnivorous, kind of like, super-growing plant. An African berry bush, which is known to grow three feet a minute when it's watered. Hold on to that. All of this, the backstage stuff, him wanting to meet Valerie, I can go with all this. But this episode drops a bomb. Listen to this. Hey, I'll have you know I've dated and wined and dined some of the finest performers on the legitimate stage. Hayes, Langtree, Barrymore. Wait a minute, you dated Ethel Barrymore? No, Lionel. <laughs> Ethel was busy that night. To tell you the truth, we didn't dance much either. <laughs> What the hell? All right, so let's talk Statler. about Statler as uh, a very driven, if not necessarily pragmatic, but perhaps opportunist man. Go Statler. No shame there. None at all. Hayes! Probably Helen Hayes. She was a super famous stage actress. She was called the First Lady of American Theater. She was an EGOT winner. Langtree! Probably Lily Langtree, who was a British actress uh, and socialite. She was known as the Jersey Lily. Jersey, England, not, you know, not Springsteen Jersey. She was famous for, like, dating a lot of, like, princes and stuff, but she was, like, a British theater actress. Barrymore! And then Ethel Barrymore, of course, is one of the Barrymore siblings in part of the Barrymore acting empire. She won an Oscar in 1944 for None But the Lonely. She was in Hitchcock's The Paradigm Case. But her brothers were Lionel and John Barrymore. She is the great aunt, and, and John Barrymore is the grandfather of Drew Barrymore. And on the mother's side, there's actors. It is just an entire, like, web of acting family. He went on a date with Lionel. No, I'd go on a date with Lionel Barrymore. I don't know. That was that threw me for a loop for a second. Because I know it's a joke. And Kermit's a little like, huh? But there's no shame to it. There's no, like, he doesn't. I mean, yeah, he kind of qualifies it by saying, you know, that Ethel was busy. Um, and that they didn't dance very much. But still, man, I don't know. That felt a little... We're getting to see a side of Statler that maybe now we've seen him and Waldorf dancing together. Maybe the like the most like progressive people in the whole theater are sitting up in that balcony. Here is a Muppet news flag. Dateline, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Doctors in Milwaukee have reported a phenomenon never before witnessed in medical annals. Mr. Gus Klinger, a steam fitter, has over a three month period turned into a rug. <laughs> Here's his wife, Mrs. Klinger, to explain what happened. Well, it all started as a simple case of shag pile on the belly, but then gradually it spread until he is now a 9 by 12 carpet with fringe. I am just going to have to sue for divorce, that's all. Well, why is that, Mrs. Klinger? Because he does not match the drapes. I actually got a huge laugh from my kids. That one has a couple layers to it. It does. There's a there's a grown up joke in there. Yeah, that's and there. But there's a completely wholesome family joke in there too. Perfect. 
One thing I didn't know was that Rolf was an aspiring poet because this is the second time Kermit has allowed Rolf to come out and do a dramatic reading. Rolf is a complicated dog. I've titled this original poem, The Butterfly. <clears throat> I saw a butterfly one beautiful morn flitting silently on the dew-covered lawn. And I thought to myself, how wonderful it would be if only we could see millions of these covering the mountains, the plains, and the seas. I held out my hand and motioned it to land. And as it did, I looked for another butterfly with which to mate it. I couldn't find one, so I sat down and ate it. Was this the UK spot or was it something different? This is, uh, no, this is just a, I don't think silence was either. Rolf has got this kind of poetry thing going on. Probably doing slams on the weekends. I don't know what he does in his spare time. I can absolutely see him at the bottom of Liberal Arts College Pub, the beret on. I see him in that, like, uh, top room at City Lights yeah. bookstore, like in the, the beat room. Mm -hmm. We go backstage, and Statler has just decided he's going to wait. Like, Kermit says, no, you can't see Valerie. And he's like, we'll see about that. And he tries to tell him that it's in, like, the theater goer's manual, that he's just allowed to go backstage at any time, which cannot be true. Here's the thing, though. It shouldn't be true, but I absolutely believe in this, the theater owned by Scooter's uncle, whose weight likes to get thrown around. Maybe Statler's a friend of his. Maybe Statler is the reason that that's in there. George accidentally gets water on the African berry bush and it starts growing. It's kind of a gremlins thing. Keep him away from water. Kind of a little shop of horrors thing. Feed me the bush starts growing, and eventually the entire backstage is going to be overcome with this vine. This is another thing that is like brand spanking new. This fantastical element, this over-the-top kind of comedic like scenario backstage. Like this is we haven't seen this before. No, most of the uh, surrealist stuff outside of actually having Muppets has been stuff that's happened in scene. It's new, and again, it feels it feels more akin to things we're going to see later. <laughs> At the Dance continues the story of Animal and the love of his life. I think your brother is going to buy you a house. Why? I heard him say that you belong in a home. <laughs> so that means she's met the family now. It's getting serious. Janice and Zooter back together, though. Maybe she was just dancing with the green frackle to, like, make him jealous. The thing I love about this being framed as Janice and Zoot being back together, the way that Zoot's characterized here is just being super elitist. Now that we're back together, I'm going to tell you what I think of all these posers. I was somewhat disturbed by the image of Dr. Teeth and Mildred dancing together. It felt wrong. His arms are too long. I, I don't know. It just felt like an odd combo. Like someone's going through a midlife crisis, but I'm not sure which one. Yes, the answer is yes. Now we get to the UK spot. Okay. Uh, so what do I do here? Oh, Sam, you just play the part of the bird. Mm. I mean, it's not written for an eagle, but... Uh... Mm. Well, is this cultural? Oh, yeah. This is light opera. Mm. Gilbert and Sullivan. Mm. Begin. <clears throat> From their light opera, The Mikado. This is only one verse, which is good, because there's two more verses, and the next verse is actually the bird actually, like, commits suicide. Holy crap. Okay, so I've got two questions. <laughs> yep. First question, what is a light opera? According to dictionary.com, a light opera or operetto is a short opera, usually of a light and amusing character. They're like kind of um, halfway in between like a like a stage musical and an opera, you know, somewhere between Sondheim and Puccini. 
and Gilbert and Sullivan are definitely one of the gold standards when it comes to light opera. On a tree by the river, a little tom tit sang. Oh, this is your part, Sam. <laughs> willow, tit willow, tit willow. And I said to him, Dickie Bird, see, that's you, Sam. You, you play the part. Of it. Uh, why do you sit singing? Dickie Bird. <laughs> willow. Tit Willow, Tit Willow. I think as it goes on, Sam starts to think he's been conned. Oh yeah, no, the look on Sam's face is priceless. <laughs> Chad, there are two people inside of me, because I've got a number of friends who could easily be Sam the Eagle in this joke, and one part of me is very protective of those personalities, because they're friends of mine and I don't want to make them uncomfortable, but the other part of me would absolutely love to put them in this position and be like, this is absolutely wholesome. But this is wholesome. <laughs> The modern mind makes it unwholesome because there is a word in the title that he has to say many times that has multiple meanings. My kids thought it was hysterical because the sounds of the words were funny. And that is true. And I also found that funny. I also found it funny because I'm a 15 year old boy. Yeah. Willow, tick willow, tick willow. <laughs> it helps to be self-aware. I have a little bit from the second verse. He sobbed and sighed in a gurgle he gave. Then he plunged himself into the billowy wave and an echo arose from the suicide's grave. Willow, tick willow, tick willow. <laughs> That's the second verse. <laughs> now I feel just as sure as I'm sure that my name isn't. Willow, tick willow, tick willow. <laughs> Sam's consternation as it goes through it. And I don't think Sam's being a dirty old man. I think Sam just thinks it sounds super silly. Oh, yeah. Rolf is the only one in on the joke. Absolutely in on the joke. Is the joke that he's making Sam look silly? Or is it he's getting Sam to say a certain word? The answer is yes. It's both. <laughs> yes. Though I probably shall not exclaim as I die. This is the last one, Sam. Willow. Tit Willow. Tit Willow. <laughs> Why are they laughing? Great musical number. Mm -hmm. Next. Great. Floyd and a couple of whatnots who are dressed as like... Now, we'll talk about the whatnots because they were the one thing that was a little freaky about... about. Speaking of boundaries and, you know, stalkerish behavior... And this one's cute. This one's not. This I don't think this one... If the two other puppets weren't so creepy looking, I think this would feel completely innocent and cute. So, Floyd and two whatnots are singing a song called Searchin'. Which was a big hit by the Coasters. The Beatles did later cover it. Yeah, and it's called Searching. It's just a song about looking for a girl. They are in a wooded area looking for Mary Louise. It's Jerry Nelson doing Floyd, and Richard Hunt is doing both of the background singers in the same way like Menomina was done. Is Aaron playing Mary Louise? Actually, Frank, Frank is playing Mary Louise. This one, it's a fun song. It reminded me of Menomina a little bit, and it really uses the frame for comedy. Mm -hmm. You know, so so they're they're going through the woods, and they're they're looking for this girl, and she keeps like popping up and popping out of frame. 
She's always behind them, but she pops up and right before they look that way, she disappears. To me, it's like a fun game of hide and seek. Like, I didn't actually find this one to be nefarious at all. You're right though, the two guys with him, and I think the fact that it's just three of them looking for her anyway, with vaguely military clothing. Yeah, but the end is sweet. When they finally find her, it just kind of puts an arm around her and they all smile, you know, like they're playing hide and seek. I think the like two whatnots are supposed to maybe look like detectives or something. I don't know what they're supposed to look like, but they make it seem a little creepier than I think it is intended to be and that it really is. That is a fair statement. It's a really, really nice song and I think Mary Louise is very funny in it and my four-year-old could not get enough of that little girl popping in and out of frame. Jim invented TV puppetry, man, and, and as soon as he, use it, using the four corners and understanding that, and understanding there's so much comedy to be had from a character appearing from nowhere and, and, and in and out of the frame, it's just just a prime example of Muppet puppetry. I'll find you, darling. <laughs> Gonna quit now. I know you're around here someplace. Gonna quit now. Oh, this is hard work. Gonna quit. Okay. <laughs> Now, we talked, we've talked before about Waldorf and Statler maybe not liking each other, but man, it looks like Waldorf's feeling pretty lonely. I was worried that he was having a stroke. Like, <laughs> and the thing is, that's something that actually happens. It's a very serious thing. I know it is. It's not something to make light of. But when his face started contorting, I was like, oh, oh, no. Not a stroke. Um, his mouth moved to the so, side. I just like. So Waldorf is lamenting. Um, he's up. Th- he's lamenting that Statler's backstage. You know, I don't know what he thinks he's doing with Valerie Harper, but that he's backstage because he won the flip, uh, which was a literal like their bodies flipping. And he says, "Yeah, but he can. Can he do this?" And he makes a face. You're right. That makes it look like he's going into some kind of medical emergency. But all it is is Jim squishing up his hand. Jim like squishes up his hand and contorts it to make just like a weird face. I thought it was funny. But <laughs> then he says though that hey, sometimes I tickle myself. In fact, I think I'll tickle myself now. <laughs> yeah, I that found was that actually more disconcerting. That was because he was—he's alone in the balcony. His companion is gone, and he's going to take some time to tickle himself. And I mean, the the face might not have been that kind of a stroke face. So backstage, the plant has run wild. It's like poison ivy is like ready to like take over the Gotham Bank or whatever. Kermit's still going after Statler, giving him crap. This is when he brings up the handbook. I know my rights. Section 3, paragraph 4, Littergoer's Manual. Any member of the audience has the right to- Oh, don't give me that hogwash. What'd you say? I said don't give me that hogwash. Well, all right, I was gonna wash the hogs, but if you don't want the hogwash, I'll just dump it here. No, no, no! And he tosses the, the water, and of course, it lands on the plants. Who is he going to wash? They have hogs there. That's a question. Who's the hogwash for? Um, I can't imagine Piggy has George bathe her. Is George just like that really grumpy old masseuse archetype? Like when he's not mopping the floor, he's built up enough tensile strength to be able to do a good job on Piggy. Like the hogs have names on the Muppet show. (laughs) Maybe he was talking about motorcycles. He probably wasn't. This is where I wrote down. No wonder George gets fired. (laughs) He had one job. When I'm doing his performance review, this shows up. This next scene is out of the blue and problematic at the same time. Yes, but can we talk about, well, let's lead into it. So Valerie's looking for a comb and uh, Hilda says, well, let me go get the makeup man, Bernie. But what enters is the Easter bunny. Which is terrifying. It's not a pleasant looking creature. The, the thing is, because like we went through all of the last episode, okay, it's supposed to be creepy, but it's like light creepy, whatever. The idea of walking into your room, turning on the light, and just seeing that in the corner is terrifying. Hilda's setting it up for a joke that he's the Easter Bernie. 
This is a long way to go. I don't trust it. It's unsettling. Like, it's got eyes on the front like a predator. I just, like... No, I don't trust it at all. You're correct. If I woke up Easter morning and that damn thing was hiding eggs in my house, I'm going to get a shotgun. I just, I feel like he's going to pop up and say I owe money for something, and I won't. (laughs) He does kind of look like a gangster. But there's, like, there's that not-quite smile where they're starting to try to appeal to your, like, sense of rationale. Like, hey, you didn't want your store broken in, and I decided I wasn't going to break in as long as you paid our nominal fee. You talked earlier about boundaries. <laughs> I think yeah. this is maybe partially what you were talking about. Uh, it's a very special episode. Hilda says, I finally got to do the pinch line, meaning punchline, but she's happy that she got to deliver the Easter Bernie joke. And then Valerie gets pinched and the uh, animal pops up and is very inappropriate. And then she punches animal. First of all, he's seeing someone right now. I am very invested so, <laughs> in Chad. his relationship with the blonde girl. Not appropriate. No. Unwanted touching. We'll call that out. But she unwanted touches him back, or at least it would be an unwanted touch if it wasn't Animal. That might excite him more, but like... Yeah, that's the thing, is if, if Animal wrongs you and you punch him in the face, you're just you're just riling him up. The whole backstage is just a jungle now. Kermit's got like on a safari hat. The, the kudzu has eaten Fozzie's cue cards. Nobody can find their way to the stage. Statler says he won't do anything to help unless he gets to see Valerie. He's being very... Now I'm starting to get annoyed with him. Like, when he first shows up, I'm like, you know what? Older men like companionship, too. He's well into his second childhood, but, like... Now he's being unreasonable. (laughs) Before, it was just like, oh, you're a sweet, doddering old man. I'm not a threat, but I show up with this giant, monstrous plant capable of devouring an entire building. It's called the Valerie, too. (laughs) Uh, Sam brings us Wayne and Wanda again. He's still trying to make it happen. And they sing On a Clear Day, You Can See Forever, which is from a 1965 musical called On a Clear Day, You Can See Forever. What are the odds? It's like they're singing the song, but there's like smokestacks behind them. There's smokestacks and then like fog rolls in. Because you see like from the beginning of the sketch, you see just tons of smoke pumping out. So you can see it coming. Of course, that ends the sketch. The screen fills with polluted smoke and everything and they can't finish. Here's a Muppet Newsflash! Dateline! Sorry. Do you think he's got like a Ron Burgundy like social life? I think he's got an ulcer and a drinking problem. And like, this is the one thing he's got. As soon as that camera's off, he's got a bottle of scotch right under that desk. Oh, yeah. Uh, But yeah, he comes out to deliver them up at news and there's just nothing written on his paper. So he just goes, sorry, and leaves. Now we're back in Valerie's dressing room and Kermit's with her and they're talking about the final number is going to be and that she's going to be dancing with uh, some creatures called the Clodhoppers. I'm going to talk about the Clodhoppers when we get to them because... Hey, but I think I should warn you, uh, you're going to be doing this with our chorus line Uh and they're known as the Clodhoppers. That's perfect. It's been so long since I've danced, I'll fit right in. I'll be a perfect Clod. But it's just setting us up for the finale with Valerie and the Clodhoppers singing Nobody Does It Like Me from a musical called Seesaw from 1963. If there's a wrong way to say it, a wrong way to play it, nobody does it like me. If there's a wrong way to do it, a right way to mess it up, (laughs) nobody does it like me. I want you to use two words to describe the Clodhoppers, and I'll tell you my two words. Grover's extended family? I was going to go with terrifying Grovers. Well, I just like Grover was the breakout Michael Jackson star of the Clodhopper 5. How to explain these puppets. So the way the puppets are built, you remember when Jim was working on his idea for a Broadway show? Yeah. 
Uh, they were actually designed for that. Of course, that never happened. And they first appeared on uh, the Julie Andrews My Favorite Thing special in 75. So the way these things work is, um, you know, it's the black background. So the, the puppeteers are wearing all black. The feet of the Grovers, you know, I mean, they just look like Grover. The feet of the Grovers are like connected to the feet of the puppeteers. And then they're operating their head and arms like normal. But they're using their feet to like move around. But they're in all black, and so they're so the basically the puppets like almost strapped to the front of them. It's neat, but it's I don't know. I found it kind of unsettling. Well, also there's that whole wide-eyed doesn't blink aspect of the Clodhoppers. So the joke of this is that like the Valerie had said in the earlier scene that you know she started off as a dancer, like you said, but she hasn't done it in a long time. She's dancing poorly for comedic purpose. Yeah, that's what I got out of it. Basically, she's just another clodhopper dressed in like a green, what do you call that? It's not a pantsuit, is it? Like a jumper? Like a nice 70s green jumper? It was probably my least favorite thing of the episode. Not just because I found the clodhoppers to be the Satan spawn of Grover, but because uh, it just, I don't know, the song didn't do anything for me, I guess. Nobody Then we get to the closing. Statler finally gets to meet Valerie. Excuse me, Miss Harper. Uh, my name is Statler. Oh, I want... for heaven's sake, Statler. I was wanting to meet you all evening. Oh. I wanted to give you this little present and ask you if you'd join me for a steak dinner later on. Hey, wait, wait a second. Uh, what, didn't that plant grow into a great big bush or was that my imagination? Yeah, well, this is its firstborn. <laughs> Thank you very much, Statler. It's lovely. But I uh, can't join you for dinner. You see, I'm a vegetarian. Of course, I could always eat the plant. Yeah, yeah before it eats you. <laughs> Again, weird seeing him on stage. Yeah. I think a great episode. It pushed so many boundaries from what they've done before. It brought in new ideas, new ways to interact with the guest star, new ways to tell stories. Uh, it brought a f- more of a fantastical element in the first episode with the ghost, but in this one with the, with the ever-growing plant. This episode is, uh, I want to say it's important, but like, I say that without any knowledge of how they thought of it. It feels like a, a later season Muppet Show episode. Next time, there's no business like show business. No business I know. We're almost there, man. We only got four episodes left. It's kind of crazy. Coming up next is episode 121 with model, singer, actress, mostly model, Twiggy. And episode 122 with Ethel Merman. I don't remember. I know the Twiggy one pretty well. I don't remember the Ethel Merman one at all. I do think her and Piggy get into it a little bit. We didn't see a lot of Piggy this time. Don't worry. We got four more seasons with plenty of Piggy. (laughs) Please check us out. Social media at Lunatic Daring. LunaticDaring.com. My name is Chad. My name is Nick. And we will talk to you next time. Feet of Lunatic Daring is written and produced by Chad J. Shonk and hosted by Chad J. Shonk and Nicholas Jackson. Music by Seth Podowitz. And a proud production of Antithesis Audio. <laughs> I was practicing my flip. Ah!